0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Marge, this is the best first novel my assistant has ever summarized for me. Now, all we need are some endorsements from famous writers.
1: Here's your quote. Thomas Pynchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras. Hey, over here, have your picture taken with a reclusive author. Today only, we'll throw in a free autograph. But wait, there's more.
0: That's author Thomas Pynchon making a rare public appearance, if you can call it a public appearance, being on the animated show The Simpsons, and even then he's wearing a grocery bag over his head. They added a question mark to the bag, which is one of those nice touches, as if even a brown paper bag is not anonymizing enough. Thomas Pynchon is one of the great American novelists of the Cold War, a period of postmodernism and pop culture and paranoia. Is he still readable for someone in a new millennium? We're joined by Antoine Wilson, author of the new novel Mouth to Mouth, who has recently made a Marco Polo like excursion into Pynchon Land and has returned to tell us what he has found. That's coming up today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining us. Thomas Pynchon, a fascinating character, a brilliant writer, a polymath, a flutter inner as opposed to a taker outer there were a couple of ways to handle the cold war and the nuclear threat and the rise of consumerism one was to go small go thin get tight-lipped and tough hushed literature raymond carver might be an example of that the other is to go screaming for the exits headed for the edge of the cliff running pell-mell full speed in terror chased by demons, grabbing whatever you can, squeezing it quickly for its nutrients, and discarding the husks and shells willy-nilly before the bombs land. That's Thomas Pynchon. So, here's what we'll do today. I'll give you a quick thumbnail sketch of Mr. Pynchon, his life, and his books, and we're going way back to the 1630s with this guy, briefly, anyway, and up to the current day, sort of. And then we'll have our guest, Antoine Wilson who has written a novel that is, I don't want to say that it's a taker-outer. That's our distinction we drew at the beginning here, put her in her versus a taker-outer. But his novel, Mouth to Mouth, is lean. It's called Propulsive and Highsmithian, and that's true. But it's the Highsmith as adapted to the screen by Alfred Hitchcock. There's no wandering around in this thing. It's as tight as a drum. And yet, when I asked Antoine if there was a book or an author he'd like to discuss, suggesting, as I usually do to contemporary novelists, that anything 50 years or older is typically better for the theme of the show, he said, how about Gravity's Rainbow? Which, as it happens, turns 50 next year. It was the National Book Award winner for 1973, in fact, and it was considered a favorite for the Pulitzer Prize as well, except the Pulitzer Committee rejected it, calling it unreadable, turgid, overwritten, obscene. So disgusted by this book they gave no prize for fiction that year. Wow. (laughs) A pessimist might say, I can't believe I wrote a book so bad that they canceled the whole damn Pulitzer Prize. An optimist might say, hey, I'm still undefeated. I don't know what Mr. Pynchon said. Chances are he collected his prize, the National Book Award, and kept writing. He was typically writing multiple novels at once, which probably did not help his state of mind for any of them, except... His state of mind captured and put on the page is sort of what they're all about. Multiplicity of voices and styles and tones and influences and themes and ideas. Harnessing all that power. This is a writer who crosses the streams. But let's introduce our guest first. Antoine Wilson is the author of the novels Panorama City. Did I get that right? Panorama City. Indeed I did. I think I got it wrong when I started the introduction with him. My eyesight is not what it once was. (laughs) Panorama City and The Interloper. He's a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and has written for the Paris Review, Story Quarterly, and Best New American Voices. He's also a contributing editor to a public space, which has crossed our path before. He lives in Los Angeles now. His latest work, Mouth to Mouth, which I'll be talking about with him, tells the story of a man who meets an old college acquaintance at an airport bar, a bar in an airport. The classmate unfurls the story of what he's been up to since college, starting with the saving of a drowning man who was an art dealer and then deepening into a kind of parasitical relationship between the rescuer and the rescuee. Lean, tight, tight, psychological portrait. Uh, Who am I and who are you? And what if the lines get blurred? What does that mean for our identity and ourselves? It's a story for our times, perhaps. And on his reading list was Gravity's Rainbow, a book full of high and low culture, German philosophy, hundreds of characters, sexuality and rocketry, in prose that shifts gears like a race car on fire. Written by a genius, maybe, a brilliant mind, certainly, a gifted writer, a polarizing figure, a devoted novelist, and a famously reclusive author, maybe second to J.D. Salinger in terms of being famous for wanting to disappear, not to be photographed, avoiding interviews, and so on. You get clues from the Simpsons appearance. That Long Island accent is there. He said later that his son had urged him to be on the show, but he, he must have been a fan, too. Thomas. He appeared on the show twice. And and on one of the scripts, which you can see online, uh, they sent him a script and he was supposed to refer to Homer as a fat ass. And he crossed out that line and then he wrote at the bottom, sorry guys, Homer is my role model and I can't speak ill of him. He also added several puns related to titles of his books. Even into his 60s and 70s, his taste for words and wordplay was still going strong. In a way, the Simpsons' cameo completed a circle. It wasn't the first time that a Pynchon had visited Springfield. In fact, it was a Pynchon who had founded Springfield, not the genericized town that Homer and Marge call home, but the actual one, or one of the actual Springfields, the one called Springfield, Massachusetts. The Pynchons began life in these United States long before these were the United States. William Pynchon, an English fur trader, emigrated to the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630. He founded the town of Springfield. He was a leader of the community, and then he wrote a book that was viewed as heretical and was banned. Those colonists were busy advocates of rough justice, on the same day that they were conducting the first witch trial, or they had some residents who were being uh, subjected to a witch trial, on the same day they hauled William Pynchon in to answer for his book, which had critiqued some of the prevailing doctrine about the origins of God and Jesus' purpose on earth. William had a happier ending than the witches. Actually, this is a pretty interesting story. And William Pynchon is tangled up in the witch story, too. So let me explain this a little more. So there was a woman. We are now, just to orient you, we are 50 years before the famous Salem witch trials. This is in the early to mid-1600s. There was a woman named Mary, lived in Springfield. She had been abandoned by her spouse. She then married a brickmaker named Hugh Parsons, who was known as being a little odd and erratic. The two of them had three children. Two of the babies died, and Mary, in her grief, was driven into a sort of insane state. In her despair, she accused a woman named Marshfield, a newcomer to Springfield. She accused her of witchcraft, said that that was the cause of her baby's death. Well, Mrs. Marshfield didn't take too kindly to the accusation. She took her case to the magistrate, who was William Pynchon, the founder of Springfield, and she accused Mary Parsons of slander. Magistrate Pynchon heard the case, found Mary guilty, and gave her a choice of punishment. Be whipped or pay 24 bushels of corn to Mrs. Marshfield to compensate her for her suffering. Now, the husband, Hugh, Hugh Parsons, Mary's husband, flew into a rage and started making wild comments, suggesting to some onlookers that he was possessed by demons. And at this point, Mary turned on him, on her husband, and said that he was the witch and that the babies had died because of his satanic influence. So they put Hugh Parsons on trial for witchcraft, and during that trial, Mary's third child died. He was only four, uh, five months and she lost her mind and told the world that she herself was the witch and had killed her baby. Several of the townspeople started having fits as the trial went on, and they all believed it was from the presence of Hugh and Mary Parsons in their midst, and they sent those two off to Boston for trial. Hugh was acquitted. Mary was acquitted of witchcraft, but sentenced to murder. She had confessed to killing her child after all. She died in prison before they could hang her. Meanwhile, William Pynchon's book had been published in England where it caused a bit of a stir but then it came, arrived on ship back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony and there it caused a scandal. This was an attack on the Puritan uh, elders and their doctrine and so in Springfield they started burning it. William Pynchon got out. He fled to England and never came back to America, but before he left, he secretly transferred all of his land to his son John, who profited from the wealth, and the Pynchons were an established American family. Ever after, their wild origins full of chaos and paranoia eventually found a culmination of sorts in the mind and pen of Thomas Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon, the novelist, was born in Glen Cove, New York, which is on Long Island, in 1937. He was a young churchgoer, attending Episcopal services with his engineer father and Roman Catholic services with his mother, who was a nurse. He was viewed as something of a prodigy. He loved to read, and he was a strong writer, even at an early age. He skipped a couple of grades and graduated from high school at age 16. While he was in high school, he published some short fiction pieces and other sketches and so on in the student paper. They already had Pinchanian elements in them, including illicit drug use, puns and wordplay, bizarre names, lowbrow culture, and paranoia. His great theme. This was the early 1950s. We're still a decade or so before Dr. Strangelove But that's the kind of atmosphere I imagine was appealing to the young Thomas Pynchon. Stanley Kubrick was also from New York and was born around the same time, about five years before. After high school, Thomas Pynchon went to Cornell University and apparently attended the famous lectures on literature being given by Vladimir Nabokov in the years just before Lolita made teaching unnecessary for Nabokov. Nabokov later said he didn't recall Pynchon at all, but apparently Vera Nabokov, Vladimir's wife, uh, did remember him. She used to grade all the essays that the students turned in. She didn't remember what Thomas Pynchon had written about, but she remembered his curious handwriting, a mix of cursive and printing. In addition to studying literature on the side, Pynchon was majoring in physics. And after a couple of years, he joined the Navy Uh, right in the middle of college, and was sent on a destroyer that went to the Mediterranean during the Suez Crisis. By the time he returned, he was devoted to English. He had a full life of memories already to pull from, his experience in the military, his rich family history, and his own wild imagination. He had friends. He was drawing on their stories as well. He wrote a science fiction musical that was all about IBM taking over the world. Again, This is Kubrickian territory. If Kubrick wrote novels, I would guess they might look a bit like Pynchon's. Let's talk a little bit more about some of those novels now. Pynchon started his first novel, V, after he left Cornell for the second time. He was in Seattle working for Boeing as they developed missiles for the Air Force. He was a technical writer. He had the engineering legacy of his father and the physics background from Cornell. All this wound up in his books. V came out in 1963 tells the story of a navy sailor named Benny Profane and an aging traveler named Herbert Stenzel who is searching for an entity he knows only as V. V won some prizes and got some decent reviews. Time magazine said, quote, "In this sort of book, there is no total to arrive at. Nothing makes any waking sense, but it makes a powerful, deeply disturbed Deeply disturbing dream sense. Nothing in the book seems to have been thrown in arbitrarily, merely to confuse, as is the case when inept authors work at illusion. Pynchon appears to be indulging in the fine, pre Freudian luxury of dreams dreamt for the dreaming. The book sails with majesty through caverns measureless to man. What does it mean? Who, finally, is V? Few books haunt the waking or the sleeping mind but this is one who indeed, end quote. It's the kind of book that Radiohead and other indie rock groups have cited as an inspiration. This was the period when Pynchon started writing four novels at once at the same time, which is not really advisable for a novelist who intends to keep his sanity. He realized it was ill-advised, but he couldn't help himself. He said, If there are anything like what's inside my head, this will be the literary event of the millennium, he said to his agent. He was living in Manhattan Beach now in California, and I sort of imagine him as being somewhere between James Joyce, Stanley Kubrick, and the Doors. In the drug culture and pop culture, besotted with language, screaming, with all these screaming, paranoid ideas driving him forward. The Crying of Lot 49 came out next, and for a lot of people, this is the place to start with Pynchon. It's the shortest of his major works. It's full of allusions to the Beatles and Vladimir Nabokov and other pop culture references. It's all about a woman who falls into a conspiracy theory about two male distribution companies that have been at war with one another for a hundred years. These characters are obsessed. And on the verge of madness, the Cold War brought that out of people. We were in the military-industrial complex years, and the, my God, we have nukes pointed at us, and crazy people are in charge of everything. And we were soon to enter the Vietnam years. World War and the Holocaust were more recent to them than 9-11 is to us today. The shock was still being absorbed. Obsession to the point of insanity was, perversely, almost a sign of sanity. It's a sort of catch-22 for a bright young novelist. Pynchon flooded his books with it. We'll skip over Gravity's Rainbow because we discuss it in more detail with Antoine. That book came next. It won all kinds of prizes, and Pynchon was now an established figure in American letters. He stopped giving interviews and objected to photographs being taken He could write what he wanted, when he wanted, at his own pace, I mean. And unlike Salinger, he continued to be productive from a publishing standpoint. He came out with a book of short stories in the 1980s and the novel Vinland in 1990, which was viewed as a disappointment. But in 1997, he came out with a book called Mason and Dixon, which tells the story of two 18th century Englishmen who were surveying the land in America including the part that became famous as the Mason-Dixon line. The whole style is in a kind of late 18th century English, and some, maybe many, consider this to be his masterpiece. So there we go. He had some other novels after that here and there, and a whole generation of people who grew up reading him, finding him, uh, uh, finding in him a kindred spirit, a guru, someone with not just talent, and imagination, but vision and answers. He's a favorite in college dorms and among backpacker haunts, in my experience. He's still alive as of this recording. He's in his 80s now, living in New York City, is my my understanding. And I believe he's still writing. We will all look forward to his next book. But now, let's return to the world of 1973. Our guide to that world, here to explain what might be inexplicable in less than an hour, we'll see, is Antoine Wilson. Antoine Wilson, his life as a writer, his book Mouth to Mouth, and his reading of Gravity's Rainbow after this. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello everyone, this is Jack, here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor, they their delicious ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, joining me now is Antoine Wilson, the author of the novels Panorama City and The Interloper. In his latest work, a successful art dealer unspools a confession to a former classmate of his, and what he reveals takes the classmate and the reader on a dizzying ride through a disturbing chain of events. Antoine Wilson, welcome to the History of Literature.
1: Hi, Jack. Thank you.
0: So, as you and no doubt our listeners probably just noticed, I was pretty vague about your novel, and mainly Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to spoil it. Do you want to set it Mm -hmm. up for listeners with a little more detail?
1: Sure. I I love your description of it. Essentially, what happens is that there's an unnamed narrator. He's a a down-on-his-luck kind of writer, and he's headed to Berlin to try to capitalize on on a magazine called him a cult writer over there, so he's he's on his way to Berlin, but via Red Eye and all these cheap flights and while he's sitting in the airport at j f k he sees somebody he remembered he hears the name over the intercom first, but somebody he remembers from college almost two decades earlier and and this guy is now a fancy. Art dealer. Mm. And that guy's name is Jeff Cook. And he invites our narrator up to the first class lounge and, you know, to catch up, even though they never really knew each other. And then he proceeds to tell him the story of how he became a famous art dealer starting shortly after college, his saving the life of uh, somebody who was drowning at the beach in Santa Monica. Mm. And then, he, you know, he tells the narrator that this he's never told anybody this story before. So immediately you start to wonder what his motives might be.
0: Yeah, well, what are the motives? Or that's something that listeners need to, to puzzle out. What I'm guessing it would be is, a need to confess something, or is yeah, he, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it does slip into an impromptu confession at the outset. I take Jeff at his word that he is his memories were stirred by seeing this guy he hadn't seen for a long time. Hmm. Um, they'd both been in the same film class, Jeff's girlfriend was in that class, and it was sort of his breakup with the girl that led to, um, in his mind, to the moment that he was on that beach. So he, he says to the narrator, You know, you were there at the beginning, um, and yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think a question at the end of Mouth to Mouth reorients the reader in a, in a certain way, but even past that, I, I've tried to leave it open in terms of how people want to read Jeff Cook. You you can read him as a sociopath, and that's fine, you know, a Ripley-type character, people mm-hmm. have mentioned uh, Ripley, or you can read him as a uh, someone who, who uh, you know, is just trying to sort of rewrite his past or create a, a specific version of his past for the narrator and for himself somebody who might not be tuned into his own privilege or you know might be trying to make himself seem like a better person than he was right there are always all different ways of, of looking at this character and i've tried to leave that like i i love something when you have the f- sort of facts on the ground right and so you're not speculating about what happened necessarily but then th- there's room for interpretation and uh, in this book i especially tried to leave room for the reader to let their orientation or their perspective guide how they they read the book.
0: Right. And just to orient the, the listeners a little bit more, when you said that this was a guy who started out saving someone's life and he became a successful art dealer, this wasn't a case of him just working really hard or him being rewarded by that art dealer, but he developed a kind of attachment or almost parasitical relationship yeah. with this person right
1: yeah and I, right i didn't mention uh, i should have mentioned that the person he rescues is an art dealer which is how you know this is how his path begins and after the rescue um you know the 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 ambulance comes and the lifeguards come and they take away the the, the guy and jeff is left sitting on the beach by himself with a with a wool blanket and he's fairly traumatized by the experience he feels mm. like he wasn't sort of given a choice you know yeah Right. And everybody's gone. There's no follow up. There's it's so he's a bit confused. And part of what he does to deal with those feelings is um, starts to investigate who it was he saved. And that that does lead into some strange territory for him
0: right well I, yeah i'll, we I'll compare this way. with something that happened when i was a child uh which is sounds like this scenario on a much smaller scale which is i was in a shopping mall and i was about eight or nine and a woman walked past me and she dropped a wad of bills and mm. i saw it hit the floor and i looked around i was the only one who saw it and I was sitting there with my father and I sort of pointed at it and he said, oh, you know, well, go like I said, I should I should run and give it back. And he said, yeah, yeah. you know, go do it. And then so I I grabbed the money and I ran to the woman and it was, you know, I don't know if it was thousands of dollars. It seemed to me like it was thousands of dollars. It was certainly a lot more money than I had ever held in my hand before. And I gave it to her and she looked down and she said, thank you so much and she was just so impressed that I was there. And then she reached into her purse and she dug out a quarter and she handed oh me God. a quarter. And, that is amazing. Yeah. That is and amazing. And I remember thinking, like, you could have peeled off one of those twenties, you know, like it, right. <laughs> it wouldn't have been right. the worst thing in the world. You know, a quarter. I mean, I was, was sure I was happy to, you know, it was nice that it was not nothing. But I, I did think, wow. And it sounds like maybe your character was sitting there on the beach thinking. Here I am. I jumped in, saved this guy's life, and he gets to go on to his life. And here I am, sitting on the beach, shivering cold and it wrapped up in a blanket. Uh, yeah. What? How did? What's the deal for me? How did? The... <laughs> right.
1: Right. Yeah. What? What? What do I get out of it? And but in, in a sense, he's very reluctant to admit that, and he he yeah. doesn't want to walk up to this guy and say, "Hey." You might not have noticed because the lifeguard showed up as you were regaining consciousness, but uh, I saved your life. You know, yeah. that's what he, he he doesn't he he thinks that's a that's a not a good thing to be doing to try to claim a reward for something that that anyone should have done.
2: Yeah,
1: it, it gets a little complicated for him. It, mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned the quarter, though, because it was sort of the seed of this book. One of the things that got me sort of actually started playing with this sort of saving a life narrative, I think I probably started about 10 years ago, messing around with versions of it, was something that happened to me back in 1997. I was in Seattle, visiting Seattle with a couple of friends, and we were down by the waterfront. And there was, there was a guy, I, I, I basically stopped somebody from walking in front of a freight train accidentally mm, he was right. air drumming you know headphones on not, <laughs> oh, no. not paying attention to the world oh. and i got his attention and he's sort of looking at me kept walking and then i got him to stop and he stopped and the train just went <laughs> right past him yeah and he looked at me you know and he was just like oh my god you saved my life yeah and then i'm gonna buy you a big steak dinner <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so right. and then right and then the train went by <laughs> and then he kept walking right and kept air drumming that was it Just the promise of a steak dinner. So my friends made fun of me forever about it. But it was initially when I started to try to play with this life-saving story. uh, It did quickly become a drowning um, in my version. But it was messing around with that steak. How many steak dinners, you know, is a life worth?
0: Yeah. Well, I have a a confession to make. Now I can tell the tale. This seems like the right time. I have been tracking that woman for the last several decades I learned that she was the host of a very popular podcast about literature, and I have jumped in and assumed her identity. I am not Jack Wilson. I'm Jackie Wilson.
1: <laughs> that's why there's an E at the end.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. But wouldn't that be a fun book? Uh, well,
1: yeah. I actually got a little excited when you said you tracked it. I was like, yeah. Really? Really? I yeah. wish I, I had. had Same, I same I had. with the air drummer. <laughs> same with the. I don't know what became of the air drummer at all. I kind of don't like i'm I'm just happy he's still was still doing his thing.
0: I have a feeling he's gonna show up at a reading uh if you ever are doing them in person in this pandemic world, and maybe he will offer to buy you that steak dinner
1: that uh, would be amazing, yeah,
0: okay, So I guess I'm also interested in this idea that your narrator is there, and I mean. I I kind of have mixed feelings because on the one hand, I feel like I have been in that situation where people want to confess to someone they own or, you know, tell a long story to mm-hmm. someone they only kind of know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then I also feel like the further away from college I get, the more I feel like even casual connections in college feel very close to me now. And so... It mm-hmm. it does seem like somebody that you only kind of tangentially know as time goes by. You feel like you you do know them quite well. And do you are both of these things at play in this connection here, or do you feel like it's mm-hmm. more one or the other?
1: I'm um, probably more of the first, but the latter mm-hmm. is
0: really really interesting because
1: yeah, as as we get older, I I don't know. I, I sometimes if I see somebody that I recognize you know, I mean, it's my temperament or whatever, walking down the street that I haven't seen in 20 years, I will say hi, you know, if the opportunity presents itself because I'm just curious, like what's, you know, what's become of them, what's going on. But there's a, a, yeah, I feel like as we get older, the world just keeps getting bigger and bigger and filled more and more with people we don't know, right? All of our replacements are showing up every day at the hospital. And so it, it does uh, feel nice when you you see somebody who you have a even just a a tiny connection with. It might feel more and more um, yeah. significant or, or powerful comforting
0: and you you kind of think we made it we survived we well we, yeah you know we came through the last few decades and we're yeah you know i know where you roughly started from you were watching the same television i was and grew up with the same kinds of uh you know in the whether it's in the cold war or or the 80s right. or the 90s or whatever it was but you just feel like we made it and yeah, how did and you get here? And I can tell you how I got here.
1: Exactly. And I feel like in this book, it's very much a middle age book, because when you when you bump into each other in middle age, it's not necessarily like we we've, we've survived. Right. We're still right. in middle age. Yeah, right. Um, right. The, the sniper on the roof is not taking that many of us out just yet. You know, like into your sick, if you're 65 or you're older what is it, American Pastoral maybe that starts, a uh, mm. Philip Roth novel that starts at a, at a reunion and there's only you know a few of them left kind of thing.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a different thing. This is, I feel like in middle age, there's a bit of sizing up, you know?
2: Like, mm-hmm.
1: wh- where's your plateau? And for the writer, he's still trying to, to get up to it. Um, sometimes that itinerary is a longer for a writer. And Jeff is sitting pretty and he's, you know, he sort of acts as if he's the the host in the first class lounge, because he is clearly proud of being a success.
0: Mm, right. And so what does this mean for the narrator to sit there and listen? Are there consequences? Does the narrator feel implicated? Or is is uh, the narrator who's listening to the story tired of of the intrusion? Or the is he fascinated? Or what's his response to it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, initially he's a little bit amused because he's sort of like wow you know we <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we, we weren't friends right yeah, like, so yeah. so this is interesting you know this guy wants to talk but he's also you know the narrator's a writer so oftentimes even if he's not going to take the story and write it right he, he's curious and he's got a, a flight delay and it's much nicer to be sitting in the first class lounge it's humane up there and so i think he's just taking it in but also kind of uh, wondering along the way at jeff's motivation as in telling the story as it starts to slide more toward confession
2: mm.
1: and as jeff you know sort of acknowledges that he knows the writer is that the narrator is a writer um you know and he's sort of like is he does he want me to write this you know like is that is he trying to lay his version down in some sort of permanent form and and the narrator says you know that he's not going to write it mm. very uh, explicitly but that's before the end of the book
0: right okay so other than general creepiness or psychological yeah. disorientation the discomfort we might get eeriness what are you hoping for the effect on the reader to be pleasure pleasure okay
1: reading pleasure yeah. i i get i mean it, and that that's Good different story. for every reader you know yeah. it's different for every reader but i i read for pleasure and i read even stuff that is boring even stuff that i struggle with even in a way sometimes stuff that i don't I, I'm not enjoying it in, in in certain ways. I'm reading for pleasure that nobody has assigned me anything. Mm. And I think that I, I, I would like to give the reader that that reading uh, pleasure, but also create a, the space where, you know, a reader meets a book halfway kind of the text is sort of dictatorial, but the reader has to then imagine, you know, some another layer on top of the text as they read. That's the cool thing about books. And. I, I like try to leave a lot of room there for the reader to create wh- whatever their reading is of it. And then I hope that they, you know, well, maybe nudge their view of the world sideways, just a nanometer, you know, like mm. that, that, that it, it's not just a, uh, you know, an, an entertainment, but th- that it might make you think about the stories that we tell about ourselves and the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves Mm. That kind of thing.
0: Right. Okay. Let's take a quick break and come back with more from Antoine Wilson, author of Mouth to Mouth, including his thoughts on an author he has recently been reading, Thomas Pynchon. Okay, we're back with Antoine Wilson, author of the new novel, Mouth to Mouth, which Marissa Silver has called mesmerizing and masterful. So Antoine, I asked you for an author you were reading, and I thought you might choose mm-hmm. Patricia Highsmith, and instead we landed on Thomas Pynchon. I understand you recently read Gravity's Rainbow. Was that a book yes. you uh, always had in mind as something you wanted to cross off your list? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um. Mm. Yeah,
1: it's funny you mention Highsmith because I haven't read Patricia Highsmith, (laughs) and there's been so many people mention Ripley, and I understand why. I saw Purple Noon. I didn't see the Matt Damon Ripley movie, but I I, maybe I feel like I maybe that's an assignment. Um, Maybe I should be reading uh, Ripley just to know how to how to discuss it. But Pinchin, I'm happy to talk about because when I first decided back in college, I, I was pre-med. I was, uh, I worked on the ambulance at UCLA and I was just, um, you know, took the MCAT. I did all of that stuff, but I was mm-hmm. an English major. And, and at a certain point I just said, stop. It was before I got my MCAT results back. I was like, I don't actually want to go to medical school. I want mm-hmm. to be a novelist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there were three, three novels that sort of sparked that coming out as an artist for me. And there was uh, Paul Auster's New York trilogy Mm -hmm. and uh, another country by James Baldwin Uh and, and V by Thomas Pynchon. And at the time to me, what Pynchon meant was a sense of freedom. His writing is intoxicating to a young writer because you read it and it's like, Oh, you can do anything, Mm. which is uh, not necessarily the best um, education in (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> in in how to write you can do anything and you can have characters that are just functionaries and that are flat and mechanical and uh, you know or whatever yeah. so not the best example but somebody who i've always admired anyway and and um who i think I, I feel like was one of the writers that got me started so gravity's rainbow i'd started a few times and i'd always sort of hit the wall a few hundred pages in or so there was Mm. sections where it just sort of stops making sense for a bit There's some sort of humps that i was not able to get over before and then my friend a a novelist named jack livings read it and i just i think i felt a sense of like it was finally time so we could talk about it yeah
0: well it seems so uh, different from your project. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, my. So I have this pile of books that I have for uh, things for me to go through and get ready for as I as I conduct these interviews. My son. Uh, who who's a senior in high school, grabbed mouth-to-mouth off the top, and he read it. Mm. And he's now reading The uh, tale of Mr. Ripley, by the way, which, which is funny. Oh, awesome. Wait, maybe, can so you call yeah, me later I should, and give yeah. me some tips on how to talk about that? Yeah, he, he can be your uh, consultant. Out, outsource, <laughs> yes. So he was describing the book to me, and he described, I think he described it pretty well, and other than the narrator, he described four characters. And Gravity's mm. Rainbow has something like 400 So it's uh, vast and sprawling and kind of magpie-ish in uh, incorporating a lot of philosophy and ideas and just whatever is, you know, it's kind of a zeitgeist type book. And so I'm wondering, did you feel like as you were reading it? are you reading it as a reader? Are you reading it as a writer looking for tips and inspiration? Or are you just saying he's doing something so different from what I do? It is, uh, I'm just gonna relax and enjoy it.
1: That's an excellent question. You've just articulated something that I had not thought of, but is very sort of hits the nail on the head. I think when I was younger, I wanted to be Pynchon, you know, and, and now it's very clear to me that, yeah, the, our projects are very different from mm-hmm. each other. And yeah. so I go to, I'm reading, or I read Gravity's Rainbow as just as a reader. Mm, right? Because even if I look at, you know, there, there's some writers like Javier Marias. Yeah. I went down a big Javier Marias wormhole yeah. and I still am down there. I, I love his work and I, my work, maybe not on a sentence level, doesn't look like his, but he, you know, he's hugely uh, influential in terms of, I don't know, just a some kind of vibe, like I, mm-hmm. I you know, uh, but, but tension, I don't know. It's a whole different world in part, because I think, you know, especially with mouth to mouth, I'm dealing with characters and psychology and sort of someone trying to put together their narrative of their of their life story. And um, in Gravity's Rainbow, that's not, you know, that's not really the concern of this book. It's more of a sort of, as you say, magpie or an encyclopedia, encyclopedia mm, yeah. or systems novel. And then on a, it's funny because I step away from it and it and when I'm not looking at it, I'm thinking about the passages that are very hard to read and don't necessarily make total sense um, to me. And then the sort of opening, which is Ulysses like and or maybe a, a nod to Ulysses. And I think of it as this huge puzzle to be, you know, sorted out and figured out in a grad student kind of way. And then I open it and I look at a paragraph and it's strangely companionable, like the, the, Mm. his narrator, you know, it feels like you're like, you're a mechanic, right. And you're in the engine bay or you're, you know, you're, you're turning your wrench and he's at the working on the next car over and he just won't shut up. And he (laughs) knows everything about everything, you know? And, (laughs) and, And the, and the pro style has this, it's like an associative leap from sentence to sentence Um, and it will just slip completely slip sideways. And then he sort of maybe reorients you at at, at a new paragraph or at a, at a new chapter. And it reminds me of sort of like the highest expression of when I had undergraduate writing students, I could always spot somebody who had written stoned because, because (laughs) they lose the main thread and typically, you know, the sentences do interact with each other, but there's a sort of slipping sideways. And so, um, this i i don't know i mean i know he he did in introduction to slow learner pension called marijuana that useful substance um i don't know what uh you know how much he he used it in terms of his writing or his revising or whatever but some parts of this book feel very much like being high or being on um maybe mushrooms or something like that because it's kaleidoscopic and that, it, it, yet, you know, everything's also associative. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I wonder if that was more tolerated from a reader's perspective. And I, I don't mean like a, a moral judgment, but just as a, coming to it aesthetically and what you have patience for and what you will find interesting and what you would find kind of jarringly distracting or more like a flaw. I'm thinking of films from that era where they will have these sequences that kind of take you that get kind of trippy and mm-hmm. today i think a lot of people they reach for the fast forward button for that and at the time i think uh reviewers and and just general audiences seem to have more of a, a comfort level with it which might have been because whether people were doing drugs at the time or not mm-hmm. it was just more of a it, it just had sort of pervaded the artistic productions
1: yeah and there was more i i I mean i i wasn't sort of conscious enough back then but you know coming out of you know the mid-century there was it feels like there's more of a probably monolithic uh sort of high culture or um high literary culture Mm. so the the kind of thing that you know you would have readers who had read or were familiar with you know rabelais and Mm -hmm. lawrence stern and other kind of other traditions right yeah and so they could say, ah, yes, this is, Pynchon is doing this, you know, he's in this other tradition, and we're going to look at his work in that respect and review it in that in that way. And then you have the hippies, right? The, mm-hmm. the people who are like, this book is a trip. And it feels like everything collided to somehow turn this thing into a, a bestseller. And I think Pynchon, yeah. like that companionable voice, and the way he just goes slow, and the way he clowns around and puts everything in appeals to that kind of non-professional reader despite the fact that it is not necessarily an easy read. And yeah. and I I think he asked them to put it in paperback so that it would be affordable to students if I recall correctly. I'm not sure about that. I, mm-hmm. But yeah.
0: Yeah. It does seem like the kind of book that uh, I'm sure you know, it it could probably find a publisher today but to to find its way to the top of the bestseller list seems almost unimaginable to me. And and you had mentioned mm-hmm. getting a few hundred pages in and hitting a wall a few times. And one of the reviews I read, a contemporary review of it from the New York Times, had sort of said the last 200 pages felt like they were spinning out of control. I mean, your whole book is fewer than 200 pages. <laughs> and yeah. if there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, for Pynchon to be You know, testing readers' patience or their attention span or making demands of them or challenging them in a way for hundreds of pages uh, just seems like I don't know that the reading public in or the maybe the you know, a a core group of readers, maybe, but uh, a broad to be a bestseller, it's hard to imagine people today would be reading something where hundreds of pages. Are confusing to them and then would be recommending that book to others and passing it around and buying it for one another at Christmas and so on.
1: Well, yeah, and, and uh, for, uh, actually my friend Jack uh, Living's, who was just reading it as well, made an excellent point about the book sometimes feels as if Pynchon just left everything in. Mm. you know it doesn't feel first drafty in any way it's very compressed and the illusions there are so many like you can get the companion book and you you, you'd be astonished at how many illusions there are on every page his his knowledge base is out of control but it does feel maximalist Mm -hmm. in that way whereas um yeah my book is very trim uh under 200 pages and yeah there are lines in my book that represent you know that represent ten thousand words that are on a hard drive somewhere that was just stuff i cut out to go sort of for like no fat. Yeah. Um, Because that was that that project. But um, but yeah, he seems he seems to just sort of give us all Everything. Yeah.
0: And if you were gonna write a big book like that and have it be a bestseller, it could probably work if it were like a, a big sprawling family saga mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. a lot of characters and and maybe across, you know, a big sweep of sociologically across all of the United States or something.
1: Or like yeah, like a like a Hanya Yanagara's new book is right I think you know seven hundred pages or something and there was um was it a suitable boy? That oh, was a yeah. big old thick book that was very, very popular. And yeah, it's not the size, it's it's sort of the the content, right? I mean, yeah. this has the sort of arcs that the Tyrone Slothrop's story can be summed up, you know, in its essence in a in a paragraph kind of. And he's not a character of great he, he doesn't feel like a fully rounded type of character, even though he's the central figure of the book. There is a character who it's very odd. Like one of the things I was surprised about when I was reading the book was this character Franz Pokler. Maybe it's P- it's like a O with an umlaut, so Pokler. He's a sort of like composite of a number of different rocket scientists. He's a plastics expert, and his I think his wife and his daughter have been taken away to some camp by some evil blacero who is also Weisman. There's this whole thing, mm. but in any case he actually tries to look back and make sense of his life. Hmm. And he's being limited to one visit per year with his daughter to this weird amusement park. That's the time he gets to see her. And then at a certain point, he becomes suspicious that it's not really her. They're using different people every year. And it's actually full of pathos. And it is around real character Hmm. that, that moves you. And it's in the midst of all this other stuff happening and it's almost like Pynchon is saying, yeah, I can do that too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm just choosing not to right now. Right. Um, in, in the other sections, but I was very surprised to, to come across that section in, and it felt very at home, you know, cause I'm, I'm used to, as many of us are reading sort of the character based or, you know, narrative, a certain kind of contemporary narrative.
0: Yeah. So it's a real journey uh Mm -hmm. through different styles and does it feel like a cold war period piece did you feel like it was rooted in did it feel timeless at all or did it feel like oh yeah this is when you know the we're in post-world war ii they're wrestling with the holocaust they're wrestling with nukes you know Mm -hmm. just the whole paranoid atmosphere does is that how it reads
1: yeah um I have to say one thing about the paranoia is I think that goes back to that associative writing from mm. from uh, from line to line. So this paranoia is a subject of the book, for sure. Yeah. You know, the rockets are coming. Right. And, and yeah. but, <laughs> but also from line to line, there's a sense of like everything is important, like everything is a sign. And so that's that's another uh, sort of characteristic of of paranoia. Um, everything becomes significant. Uh, and it, then, in terms of the Cold War thing, it's—I mean, it's this is one of those things where I, 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 not knowing, you know, a lot of this the 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 background material, not being an expert in World War II post-war history, you know, I looked at, up the allusions and stuff, and it is certainly a, a snapshot in time, a warped snapshot in time of of that that period, and yet the sort of thematic content that the 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 thesis maybe of it this idea that sort of technology has its own itinerary Mm. you know technology is is what's moving this book forward and the things in our world in this book forward we are all just along for the ride it's like season four of the wire right like Mm. we're just players and and in this greek tragedy the educational system is just you know we can't change it so technology is the driving force and the characters are you know sort of it's made literal here they're like subservient to to the the needs of the technology it kind of comes to life the the metaphor kind of comes to life and i feel like that could you know that couldn't be more relevant to our world today i mean it it just the sort of medium has shifted right and yeah so so it it has all those details from that time but I, i feel like the, the ideas are, yeah, 100% relevant to to what's going on.
0: Yeah. Well, along with paranoia, I mean, paranoia seems like a close cousin to a feeling of helplessness. And hmm. that, uh, you know, if I, I'd like to think I'm not paranoid, and I, my, my response to an accusation of being paranoid would be, well, it's not paranoid if, if it's true. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but definitely the feeling that things are spinning out of control and there's nobody who can stop it and anybody who is in a position to do anything at all to stop it, it doesn't care or doesn't notice or is similarly helpless that's definitely the feeling that i've or, had for the last you know 10 years and certainly the last 3 or 4
1: yeah and and i mean the people who are in power in positions to potentially stop it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: whether whether we're talking about, you know, sort of hyper polarization of politics on the Internet or whatever that in order to stop it, they would literally have to use that power to destroy their own creations. Yeah. And, and that's just not happening. It doesn't happen in the military and it's not going to happen in the in the tech world. Yeah.
0: And and there is no incentive to stop it. No. And in fact, the incentives would all work the other way.
1: Mm hmm. They certainly do. You get a free ride on a rocket. So we're
0: doomed. <laughs> would we be better off if ever if Gravity's Rainbow were required reading or would that just increase the level of despair? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I <laughs> if it were required reading. Oh, man, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I I don't know that people would do the required reading. Very, very few of us would do it. And we would, I think, get more aesthetic pleasure than anything out of it, because the points that are made are are self-evident to us in a lot of ways. And it's sort of like it's not necessarily a call to action. You know, it's a, it's a picture.
0: Mm, right. OK, so can you finish this sentence for me? Oh, boy. Uh, the person who should read Gravity's Rainbow would be someone who is looking for blank.
1: An altered state. Mm. You know, I mean, one of the things back in oh, the day. Such a good uh, I, I, yeah, <laughs> Congratulations. Because it, 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 thank you. It took me a sec, but yeah, I got it. Uh, back in the day, one of the things, I mean, uh, that, that I was looking to to want to do as a writer was to do to other people's heads what my favorite books were doing to my head. So mm. there was a, you know, mm-hmm. there's definitely a drug, a drug analogy there. Yeah. I think Envy did that for me. Another Country was a different thing. I was, it's just an amazing novel. And, and it's really about the rhythms of storytelling and, and also being able to write from so many different characters from different groups. But then, and then the New York trilogy um, by Paul Oster, very different style from um, Pynchon, but that, those three together, really, I had a very, I had very strange, very strange reading experience with that. Like I would be through, you know, into the second book and and thinking that, have I already read this? You know, like there's this this weird layering effect that happens with those three books that, that was uh, altered, I, I guess I would say.
2: Yeah,
0: all three yeah. of those authors seem to share something we've been talking about, which is the feeling that you can do what you want. That that the author ah. had, you know, that they're they're independent, they're tough, they're they're brave and courageous in a way, and but also just the feeling that they all value artistic freedom and mm-hmm. the, the ability to sort of say, this is my story, this is how I'm going to tell it, this is how it's going to be. I get that feeling from all three of those authors.
1: That's a, that's really a, an excellent point, point. and I think one thing that maybe a lot of people don't realize, a lot of young writers don't realize, and a lot of just people in general don't realize is that sort of thing, doing what you want as an artist mm-hmm. begins with figuring out what you want. Yeah, And a lot of the time that happens through the process of making things. So it's not like you stop and be like, Oh, I, this is what I want to do. So the sort of, you, you feel your way toward unconventionality, I guess. And it's nice to have models who exhibit that kind of freedom along the way but it's also very, uh, you can get a bit of sort of vertigo and want to grab for things that are more conventional just to, to feel a sense of um, security in what you're doing. And I like to return to some of those writers to remind myself, no, nah, just feel your way there. Yeah, They did. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's easy to, to see it sometimes in people's first book. But when you get mm. a mid-career book of an author where they've gotten some reviews, they have their editor in place, their publisher maybe has some expectations. You can, you know, I've heard of an anecdote about Philip Roth, who used to sit down, I guess when he was in his 60s or something, and he would say, I'm 25, I can write whatever I want. I'm 25, I can write whatever I want. And he had to kind of free himself from being, you know, Philip Roth, American literary lion, and, and become again, just the hungry young writer who didn't know any better or didn't have the weight of all of this pressure of what was going to come next out of the Philip Roth typewriter.
1: Right. And I'll say this out of pure ignorance, but I bet he didn't say that to himself at 35 or 40. Yeah, right. (laughs) I bet at 35 or 40, he was probably looking at several, you know, several books and and sort of being like, oh, I guess this is what I'm doing.
0: Here's what I can do next. And yeah, yeah, this this would be a natural evolution for me. And yeah,
1: right. Because you don't necessarily have that sort of big picture of what you're up to. Um, I mean, some people do, but it, it, a lot of the time you don't until you've, you're several books in and then you're like, oh, this this is the strange common thread through all of my work. Should I keep, you know, plucking that string or or not? Um, mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we are now about 50 years later from uh, 50 years away from Gravity's Rainbow, which is starting to give us some historical perspective on it. Do you think it belongs in a category with with Melville and Faulkner is is Pynchon and Gravity's Rainbow in particular in our American canon or is have we moved on or do you think it's too soon to tell?
1: I think, yes, I think it deserves to be in the canon, it is a bit of an oddball. Mm. Um, you know, I. it's interesting you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned Melville and Faulkner. I think Faulkner also was a big lever-inner, mm-hmm. um, and Melville was maximalist in Moby Dick. But I think Melville was much more programmatic mm. in some... Like, if you read Marty, the book that kind of made Moby Dick possible, it's, it's a kind of a slog, but you can see that he's trying to Take a number of philosophical concepts and give each of them, you know, an island basically, mm-hmm. um, and then and that those become characters in in Moby Dick. But yeah, I think T- Pynchon is yeah you know, an experimentalist, but he he might just be a, a little bit of an outlier. Mm-hmm. But I I feel like Gravity's Rainbow is. I mean, does it does it come down to like whether it inspires a, a whole lineage
2: mm-hmm.
1: of work? Right? Is that what what determines whether it stays in the in the canon or not? Or can you have this sort of oddball? masterpiece be you know part of the canon I, I i feel like it was highly influential you know toward like david foster wallace and other brainiac maximalist writers
2: mm, um yeah. that
1: doesn't i don't know if that's in vogue right now but i, I think people are still doing it yeah it some will, time will tell
0: right right it'll be interesting to see if people uh and and sometimes you know 50 years from now they might appreciate it more
1: yeah well and that's the, the melville example right like yeah. his his obituary said you know author of taipei omu and other <laughs> south sea sails or something you know like they, <laughs> right they, yeah and faulkner also had to be somewhat i think revived by the um uh that anthology that uh i can see it but i can't remember what the what it was called, but it was an anthology that sort of brought him back into American consciousness. Right, right.
0: Okay, well, let's leave things there. Antoine Wilson, author of the new novel, Mouth to Mouth, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank
1: you. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation.
0: Okay. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Mr. Pynchon for wrestling with all those Cold War demons and managing to wrangle them, (laughs) round them up, stuff them between two covers. And my thanks to Antoine Wilson for peering into the cage and letting us know what he found. His book is called Mouth to Mouth, available now in bookstores everywhere. We are thankful also that you chose to join us today. You can help support the show at patreon.com literature, or if you're a one-time donation kind of person, at historyofliterature.com shop. Look for the option there for virtual coffees, which is our way of accepting those donations for $5 or whatever you wish to donate. You can go higher if you'd like. Buy me a coffee, buy me a beer, or in honor of Thomas Pynchon. Maybe buy me a strange little brew of something we probably shouldn't be drinking, a potion or a poison. Something that promises to alter our state. Hopefully in a good way. But it's not a question of good or bad, is it? It's a question of what's necessary. Or maybe we could just drink a fresca. I can go that way too. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.